Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison. I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or so as we go through recent developments in the public safety labor world. And I have a few cases that I want to talk to you about. If I get to them all, I've got five of them. One on whether or not a worker's comp limitation on stress claims is unconstitutional. Got an interesting case as to whether a police sergeant who set up a Dropbox account using his employer email has any privacy interests in the Dropbox account. And a really interesting case out of uh, Indiana, a small fire department in Indiana, where the firefighters union got crosswise with the mayor, who used to be a firefighter, uh, and they went to political war. And the result was that the mayor ordered a schedule change to an absolutely impossible schedule for the firefighters. Firefighters sued, and eventually a federal court of appeals has to weigh in on whether or not the decision to impose that schedule change was illegal retaliation under the First Amendment. So we've got all these kind of interesting cases to talk about, but before we get to any of them, something came across my desk yesterday, uh, courtesy of PORAC, the Peace Officers Research Association of California, Uh, and it is a new article, hot off the presses, Uh, And it's entitled, Evidence on Measures to Reduce Excessive Use of Force by the Police. Uh, And this is published by three authors who are with either the Ford School uh, of the Center for Racial Justice or Poverty Solutions, both of which are at the University of Michigan. Now, these authors, I think, have an excellent question to ask, and that is, we've seen all these police reform measures that have been bandied about across the country, some imposed by state legislatures. Do they work? What is the metric by which we are going to measure whether a reform measure works? And when we look around the country, What do we see in terms of performance under that metric? This is something we've been waiting for, right? Because all of these proposals that we've heard legislatures consider, there's always been something missing. And the missing part has been data. Show us why doing whatever this is, whatever the particular reform measure might be, show us why that has any impact on either police or civilian conduct. And the answer up until this time has been uh, because we think so, not because there is data. Now, mind you, uh, when you take a look at this article, and we'll post it with our show notes, uh, you're going to uh, quarrel, well, I think, the ideological approach taken by some of the authors, uh, or all of the authors. They come into this with a very clear bias, uh, and that bias shows up, I think, most strongly in the unwillingness to consider a whole wide range of reports that reach contrary conclusions uh, to the ones that they reach. 
and also they paint like a very different picture than other people paint. Um, so, for example, uh, they start off with a little bit of background and say that with approximately a thousand individuals killed by police every year in the U.S., the rate at which civilians die at the hands of law enforcement is extremely high compared to other democracies. Is that true? Yes, only if you view it on a per capita basis. But, as I've mentioned before on this podcast, if you measure it instead against the rate of violent crimes, actually our deadly force rates in this country are lower than you would expect. So there's a lot of that sort of stuff going on with this article. But that said, I think you can get some pretty good preliminary views here. Uh, and there is a lot of good information collecting a lot of studies here. So let me go through them. Uh, and these are reforms, uh, all of which have been proposed uh, by what was known as Campaign Zero, an offshoot of Black Lives Matter. Uh, and many of these have been adopted uh, by either law enforcement agencies or in some cases by state legislatures across the country. So let's start with de-escalation training. Does de-escalation work, uh, this sort of training? And their answer is, we don't know. Uh, they mention that there are three studies that have sought to measure the causal relationship between de-escalation training and use of force rates. It turns out that two of them find that there is little or no effect, and the third finds a large and significant effect. But they use different definitions of de-escalation. So bottom line, we don't have a clue whether de-escalation training uh, works, and we probably need to work towards a much better definition of what de-escalation is. Uh, the second recommendation is the development or adhering to a use of force continuum. Uh, and actually, use of force continuums, as those of you involved in law enforcement, oh, those things have been kind of going away over time in favor of a general reasonableness standard. But still, there were recommendations to impose use of force continuums. And the answer is, uh, that the authors give is while we have looked at this, we don't see any evidence that a use of force continuum reduces the use of deadly force. Uh, third, restricting or banning chokeholds or strangleholds. Uh, first of all, I don't think I've ever seen it referred to as a stranglehold. Really, I think what they're talking about when you look at the context is a carotid hold, which is anything but a stranglehold. I mean, they say in this article, quote, strangleholds temporarily cut off blood flow to a brain, rendering a subject unconscious. That looks like a carotid hold, not a stranglehold. Uh, and what do they think about whether or not it works? Uh, interesting conclusion here. Jurisdictions that ban chokeholds and strangleholds have 22% fewer police killings per capita than those that do not. 
However, this may be because places that ban chokeholds and strangleholds are simply less likely to use force of any kind. It's unclear whether these bans lead to lower rates of police use of force. And therein lies a problem that many of these answers have. And the problem is there's not simply one reason why police officers use force. There's hundreds of reasons why that may happen. And if you're going to be looking at an analysis as to whether or not one particular factor has a use of force, you got to rule out all of the dependent variables, right? You have to rule out the possibility in this case that bans on a chokehold might be more frequent in a place that already uses less force. So you really can't tell what impact the ban on the chokehold actually had. And that's just simply a limitation that is imposed by the fact that we haven't kept really good data on any of these things. So we're 0 for 3 so far as to whether these recommendations reduce deadly force. Number four, requiring officers to give verbal warnings before using a deadly force. Same sort of conclusion as with respect to chokeholds. Quote, while departments that require verbal warnings before shooting experience 5% fewer police killings per capita, we did not find any research that assessed the causal effect of policies requiring verbal warnings on police use of force. So once again, we haven't measured the right variables. Same thing is true with respect to recommendations for uh, prohibiting uh, shooting at moving vehicles. Conclusion, more research is necessary. Uh, the sixth one, requiring that all reasonable alternatives be exhausted prior to the use of deadly force. Their conclusion, additional research needs to be conducted to determine the causal impact of these policies. Seventh, requiring an officer to intervene if another officer is engaged in inappropriate conduct. Their conclusion, there is currently no evidence assessing a causal relationship between duty to intervene uh, policies or training programs and police behavior. Uh, and it just goes on and on and on uh, throughout, uh, let me get the exact count here, but it's like almost 20 different recommendations. Their conclusion is very consistently, with a couple of exceptions, very consistently, we don't know whether or not these measures actually reduce the use of deadly force. Even, for example, banning or restricting no-knock warrants. Their conclusion, again, additional research needs to be conducted to determine the causal impact of these policies. They just ended up cutting and pasting that sentence many times. So uh, what are the ones where they found some sort of impact? Uh, well, the first one is uh, body cameras. Uh, they ended up concluding that uh, there is one study that they describe as having a particularly robust experimental design. It comes out of Brazil. 
that shows a large negative effect of body cameras on the likelihood of the use of force. However, they also acknowledge that there are plenty of studies showing no impact on the use of force uh, from body cameras. They just prefer to rely on this one study from Brazil. Uh, Second one uh, where they find uh, some sort of impact is diversifying law enforcement. And what they say is that on the basis of once again one study, and this is a study out of the Chicago Police Department, uh, they find that uh, black officers and to a lesser degree uh, Latino officers are significantly less likely to stop arrest and use force against civilians, especially black civilians. This is one of the areas, though, where uh, they've ignored prior research. And there are a couple of studies, one out of Philadelphia Police Department, one out of NYPD, showing that black officers actually are more likely, much more likely, at a level of twice or three times uh, likely to use deadly force than white officers on black civilians. So they just simply ignore those and instead rely on this single Chicago study. And they say that these rates of force in Chicago, quote, appear to be driven by reduced discretionary stops and arrests for petty crimes, including drug offenses. So in other words, because officers are not stopping as many people, they're not using as much deadly force. And they're not stopping as many people, apparently, related to the race of the officer. What this is all saying, I'm not going to go on any longer about this, what this is all saying is crystal clear. We need more data on this. Uh, we have made all sorts of policy changes in law enforcement some of which may be good and some of which may be disastrous. Uh, and I'm sitting here, of course, recording this in Portland where we've made any number of policy changes that I think the majority of people in Portland would say were not a good idea to make, would say that today. Um, and we need to be making these decisions on the basis of data not belief, not hope, not, you know, whatever your political philosophy might be, but we need to be making decisions on the basis of information that will guide us as to whether those decisions will be helpful. At any rate, we'll post this thing on the show notes. Uh, interesting to read. I'd encourage you to go to the footnotes and take a look at some of the articles in the footnotes. Uh, interesting document. Now let's go to that crazy free speech case uh, coming out of an Indiana fire department. Uh, this involves a fellow named Anthony Copeland. Copeland was a firefighter for 26 years when he was elected mayor of East Chicago, which is actually in Indiana. And shortly after he was elected, he implemented all sorts of cost-cutting measures. One effort was he implemented freezing salaries and benefits of firefighters for East Chicago. He abolished terminal leave, froze longevity pay and out-of-grade pay, 
and eliminated uh, the payout of leave for firefighters hired after 2010. Now, you're probably saying, wait a minute, how can he do all that in a bargaining environment? And the answer is there is no statewide collective bargaining law in Indiana that covers firefighters. So he's not operating in a bargaining environment, so he doesn't have to negotiate any of these changes. So he makes all of those changes, and then in 2019, he runs for re-election. Uh, the Political Action Committee for the Union, which is Local 365 of the IAFF, uh, actively campaigned for Copeland's uh, opponent in the race, go figure, uh, as well as several candidates who opposed Copeland's policies uh, on what's known as the Common Council of East Chicago. Copeland got reelected, but the majority of the Common Council was made up of people who the firefighters endorsed. Uh, when Copeland was inaugurated, uh, several firefighters protested. Copeland publicly commented he found that disrespectful. Well, in August, after the election, uh, the union president, a fellow named Dave Mata, and the Common Council worked together to draft a salary ordinance that would reinstate some of the benefits that Copeland had frozen way back in 2010. Uh, the council approved the reinstatement of the benefits. Copeland vetoed it, and the council could not override the veto. Copeland then swings into action again, even though he's just won, right? His veto's been upheld. Uh, Copeland directs the fire chief, a fellow named Anthony Cerna, to come up with a new schedule for the department. Uh, the department had been on the 24-on, 48-off schedule, which was, as you know, is used by most fire departments across the country. Uh, the fire chief ends up proposing a couple of different schedules to the mayor, and the mayor picks one that is called an 824 schedule. So what's an 824 schedule? That's where a firefighter works for eight hours and then is off for 24 hours. Think about that schedule for a moment. So no other fire department in the country has ever adopted the 824 schedule. Why? It's because firefighters are on duty uh, different work hours every single day. You can have a firefighter who works the day shift one day, the night shift the next day, and the graveyard shift the day after. Uh, and as you might imagine, this rotating schedule wreaks absolute havoc on the personal lives and the health of the firefighters. It makes it impossible to establish a consistent sleep schedule. Uh, of course, all chance of a a, a normal family life is gone. Firefighters begin to experience irritability, trouble concentrating, lack of sleep, weight gain. Uh, and finally, Cerna, fire chief, and Matta, union president, meet at a local Burger King to discuss the change. Matta comes armed, not with a gun, but with a recording device, a secret recording device, and he records the conversation. And during the conversation, the chief says, and I'm quoting, these moves are in reaction to what we saw. It's like a card game, poker. You showed your hand. So we know what the hand is. 
So in anticipation of what's coming down the road, that's what these moves are right here. You can call it retaliation. And I'm going to call it, well, we know what it is you want and what you're going for, so you have to prepare for that. End of quote. Um, Matta and Cerna meet a little bit later, uh, and they discuss a draft memo of agreement where the city would switch back to a 24-on, 48-off schedule, and the union would agree to give up its right to lobby the Common Council. Uh, and a draft memo of agreement is reached on this. It's submitted to the membership, and the membership turns it down. Uh, so uh, we now have the battle lines being uh, completely drawn. Uh, the Common Council swings into action again, passes an ordinance, putting the firefighters back on the 24-on, 48-off shift. This time, they override a veto from Copeland. Copeland sues, alleging the ordinance violated his executive power under Indiana law. A state court agrees with Copeland, reinstates the 824 schedule, and finally, Local 365 and its officers sue in federal court, saying, you violated our free speech rights by imposing this schedule. This was direct retaliation for us lobbying the Common Council. And the Federal Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals agrees with Local 365. Uh, the city's main argument is actually kind of an odd one. Uh, the city's main argument is that because the chief never explicitly said the schedule change was retaliation during the meeting, that there can't be retaliation. And the court says, quote, this argument holds no water. There is no magic language requirement for First Amendment retaliation claims. Even without using the term retaliation, the chief suggested with thinly veiled euphemisms that the city retaliated against the firefighters. He even stated the eight-hour schedule was a reaction to that original ordinance. So uh, the, the court ends up hold, holding that the imposition of the 824 schedule was motivated by the firefighters' lobbying activities, uh, sends the case back down to the trial court to fashion a remedy, and the remedy is, I think, obviously going to be that the firefighters will be put back once again on a 24-on, 48-off shift. And really, is there much a much worse labor relations environment in a public safety organization in this country than I have just described, an 824 schedule. There is so much literature on how that schedule is harmful to health. It's stunning that an employer would even consider imposing it, even if the employer was motivated by retaliation. Now let's go to that Dropbox case. It comes out of Taylor County in Wisconsin and involves a detective sergeant named Stephen Bowers. 
in February of 2017, the department was working with the television program Cold Justice uh, on a homicide cold case. Uh, The court's opinion calls this the murder one case. Uh, The department, when it was cooperating with Cold Justice, uh, agreed to provide some information some file material and the like about the murder one investigation. In criminal charges that are filed later against Bowers, the state of Wisconsin claimed that Bowers shared two additional homicide files, which the court calls murder two and murder three, with cold justice without the department's position. Bowers was uh, alleged to have provided murder two's paper file, uh, to the producers, and as to murder three, the state alleged that Bowers uploaded the file to his Dropbox account and then used the account to share the file with his girlfriend and two members of Cold Justice's staff. Uh, The Dropbox account is his personal Dropbox account, but it was created using his employer-issued email address. Okay? The department eventually becomes aware of the unauthorized release of information, uh, conducts an investigation, and Bowers admitted that he shared the file uh, without seeking permission. Uh, And uh, as a result of the investigation, uh, criminal charges are filed. Bowers then files a motion to suppress the evidence That came from a warrantless search of his Dropbox account. What had happened was that an IT employee for the county performed a password reset on Bauer's account. The password reset, uh, you know, we've all done these, right? It emailed a link to the email address Bauer's used to set up the account. Well, that's the county's email address, right? So that gave the IT, the employee, who had access to Bowers County email address, the ability to change the password, which effectively locks Bowers out of access to his account. And then the department does the warrantless search of the Dropbox account. Uh, While the Wisconsin Court of Appeals finds that uh, this conduct by the state, by the county, by the IT individual, violated the Fourth Amendment. Uh, the, the question that the court has to address is whether or not Bowers had a reasonable expectation of privacy in his Dropbox account. And by reasonable, that means what any of us believe, just as a matter of course, that we had an expectation of privacy in this sort of account. The court said, Uh, There's several factors that are at issue here, uh, and some of them cut in Bowers' favor. First of all, uh, Bowers had a property interest in his account. He set it up, he paid for it, and he maintained the account lawfully. uh, And therefore, that cuts in Bowers' favor uh, uh, towards the notion that he had a reasonable expectation of privacy. Uh, The state argued that Bowers didn't have complete control over the account because he shared his Dropbox account with others, his girlfriend, employees of Cold Justice. Uh, However, the court says Bowers didn't share his password. Therefore, 
All he did was to decide who saw what and under what circumstances in his Dropbox account, meaning he maintained a reasonable expectation of privacy. Now to the heart of it. Uh, The state argued that because Bowers used his county email address to create the account, uh, that he had no reasonable expectation of privacy in the account. The court says this is a, quote, slippery slope argument. In essence, the state argues that an individual's expectation of privacy is diminished where a location or an item is accessible or capable of being broken into. We agree that under the circumstances of this case, Bowers maintained dominion and control over his account. And the court goes over some of the factors it finds that are very relevant. He didn't share his password with anyone. He only shared specific files. He could not have anticipated that using his county email would have destroyed his privacy rights in a password-protected account. The county's IT policy was silent on the the issue. Of course, as all of these factors uh, argue towards Bowers having a reasonable expectation of privacy. And I love the the parting lines in the court's opinion here. Uh, The court says, quote, use of cloud storage to house an individual's private information is just the latest technological development seeking to test the boundaries of the Fourth Amendment. We conclude that society is willing to recognize that a user has a legitimate expectation of privacy in his or her Dropbox account. By using a password that is not shared, these users expect their cloud storage accounts to remain private unless the user shares the files with otherwise even if the information is stored by a third party. This is the first Dropbox uh, Dropbox case I've seen involving public safety employees, in fact, involving any employees. And it strikes me that the court's decision here is probably going to be the way these cases go. Could the employer have created a different result here? Maybe. What if the employer had an IT policy that prohibited the use of uh, setting up and maintaining Dropbox and other cloud storage accounts uh, using the employer's email address or email servers. Would that tilt the balance in favor of the employer? Maybe. What if the employer's policy said, if you do happen to set up one of these cloud storage accounts, You have no expectation of privacy in it if you access the account through your county email. Maybe. We'll see. And you know what? We will see because these cases will come sure as anything. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you'll know that there are all sorts of different standards used out there to judge whether stress claims, particularly post-traumatic stress disorder claims, uh, are covered by workers' compensation or pension laws. Uh, Some of the standards used by states uh, make it almost impossible to prove 
that an officer or a firefighter or paramedic, corrections officer, whatever, is entitled to workers' compensation benefits for PTSD. In other states, uh, and this seems to be a little bit of a trend, more states going this way, uh, state statutes have created a presumption that PTSD is caused by the job of a public safety officer. And then there's the great middle of the continuum where you have just a panoply of different laws and legal standards, most of which usually make it fairly hard to approve a workers' compensation claim. Uh, Arizona is one of those states that does not have, uh, if you're an employee, a good standard for judging PTSD claims. Under Arizona law, workers' comp claimants uh, have to prove that any mental injury, including PTSD, uh, was caused by unexpected, unusual, or extraordinary stress. Uh, That's a very high standard, unexpected, unusual, or extraordinary stress. So what goes on in this uh, case that came down uh, about a month ago? Uh, This involves Timothy Matthews, who is a Tucson, Arizona police officer. Uh, He went to work for Tucson in 2000. In 2009, when Matthews was off duty, he passed by an accident involving a car that had a police officer on a bicycle. Matthews responded to the scene and later learned that the officer had died. Uh, That actually started sending Matthews into a tailspin. Uh, He ends up talking to a supervisor, saying the incident negatively impacted him. Uh, He was sent to a psychiatrist, but no workers' compensation claim was ever made. A couple of years later, 2011, Matthews is promoted to detective. And seven years after that, uh, he transferred to the domestic violence unit in the uh, police department. Uh, And during all of these years, he continued to receive professional mental health care. And then becomes the the tipping point event. In June of 2018, Matthews is responding to a domestic violence scene where an armed suspect was barricaded with his ex-wife and stepson in a garage. Uh, Officers end up surrounding the home, and eventually they breach the garage door. The suspect, who's visibly bleeding from a self-inflicted chest wound, then attempts to crawl out of the garage with his hand raised. Uh, The officers, responding officers, pull him out of the garage, administer first aid, but the suspect dies at the scene from his self-inflicted wound. Matthews is watching all this on live stream, and he's later assigned to inspect the suspect's body and to photograph the crime scene. After this incident, uh, Matthews' symptoms just are exacerbated. He begins having nightmares, flashbacks. He can't concentrate on the job, talks to his captain, reports all of this, sought additional care from his treating psychiatrist and the city's doctors. Both doctors recommend that he be relieved of his work duties. Matthews uh, then files a workers' compensation claim uh, contending 
that the June 2018 incident exacerbated his pre-existing post-traumatic stress disorder. And the doctors all agree on that uh, from a medical standpoint, that that is in fact what happened. Uh, And uh, when the city denies Matthew's workers' compensation claim, the case winds up before the Arizona Supreme Court. And the question the court has to decide is whether this Arizona standard, and that is whether or not, in Matthew's case, the June 2018 incident involving the guy in the garage who killed himself, whether that was an unexpected, unusual, or extraordinary stress situation, whether that standard violates uh, the Arizona Constitution. What could be in the Arizona Constitution about workers' compensation? There actually is an article, Article 18, Section 8 of the Arizona Constitution. We'll put a link in the show notes for you. And what it says uh, is that there is a constitutionally guaranteed level of benefits for workers injured in an accident, quote, in the course of employment uh, caused in whole or in part, or contributed to by a necessary risk or danger of such employment. Uh, Matthews argues that requiring workers' comp claimants to prove their mental injuries were caused by unexpected, unusual, or extraordinary stress, that violates the constitutional protection of workers' compensation benefits. Uh, And the Arizona Supreme Court has none of it. The court says, you know what Article 18, Section 8, that section of the Constitution doesn't say? It doesn't say anything about what claims are encompassed by that article. Just says that there will be benefits. And uh, the court says everybody agrees that an injury by way of an accident is the necessary predicate for coverage. Uh, And the court ends up saying, and I quote, an authoritative dictionary published in 2012 at the time our Constitution was adopted defines injury as that which occasions harm morally or physically, detriment, loss, damage. Uh, The court says none of those terms encompass a traumatic event or series of event, whether anticipated in the scope of employment or not, that cause or exacerbate a serious mental health illness. Now, here's uh, the way the court ends its opinion. Quote, we do not hitch constitutional meaning to the evolving state of scientific art or, quote, modern medical opinion, end quote. Such changes or advances are relevant to medical causation, but not legal causation, which is defined here by the Constitution. It may be that our organic law and statutes should be revised to reflect advances in medical understanding, but that's not our job to conduct such a revision. So in Arizona, 
uh, they are stuck with 110, 11 now, 111-year-old definition of the word injury, a definition that somehow or another exists in the new Websterian Dictionary of 1912. Um, There's a line, and I want to say it was a philosopher by the name of Anatole France who said it. Uh, It's the line that the law in its majesty uh, prohibits both the rich man and the poor from sleeping under a bridge. Uh, with the whole notion being that the law can some, sometimes be fundamentally illogical when applied literally. That message has not gotten through to the Arizona Supreme Court on the issue of workers' compensation. But one thing the court says is absolutely correct. You know what the solution is here, right? It's a political solution. It is going to the Arizona legislature to change the definition of when uh, stress claims are compensable to reflect medical evidence that has developed over the last 111 years. I want to close with a case about a topic that's getting an awful lot of national attention now, and that is, are there circumstances under which the suicide of a public safety employee is considered to be a line of death uh, injury. Uh, This is a case that comes to us out of Minnesota. Uh, Washington County, Minnesota, uh, Deputy Sheriff Jerome Lanning. Uh, Lanning had been a public safety officer for uh, decades. Uh, Over the course of his career as a deputy, He'd responded to what you might imagine to be the full range of disturbing incidents, double murder, multiple suicides, child sexual assault, fatal vehicle crashes. Uh, He was involved in a lot of high-stress situations, uh, such as apprehending a suspect in a domestic dispute who had been firing a weapon. And finally, by 2015, Lannon is diagnosed with anxiety and depression. He begins uh, therapy, and his psychologist noted that Lannon could be suffering from PTSD related to his work. In 2018, which is going to be the same year he committed suicide, Lannon injured his back while lifting his granddaughter. Uh, That injury caused pain in his lower back, numbness in his left leg. In September of 2018, he's further injured uh, in a serious car accident, and he went into what was later described as PTSD overdrive. He went on medical leave at the time of the car accident and never came back. He sought counseling. He went to a new therapist. Uh, who recorded a diagnostic impression of PTSD, went to a second therapist who, uh, to whom he reported symptoms of depression and suicidal thoughts. Um, two days later, after that session, Lannon's supervisor brings him to a hospital because he's experiencing suicidal ideations. A doctor in the emergency room thought Lannon was high stress enough Uh, that he kept him in the emergency department overnight. 
Eventually, Lannon is diagnosed with major depressive disorder with psychotic symptoms and PTSD. Uh, the hospital admits him for inpatient care, um, but uh, very quickly, uh, days later, he's discharged from the hospital, and five days later, he commits suicide. Uh, Lanning's widow uh, applies for benefits under a Minnesota statute that allows benefits to public safety officers who are, quote, killed in the line of duty, end quote. Uh, the state opposes the grant of those benefits, and the whole thing ends up before the Minnesota Co uh, Court of Appeals. And the court has to decide, how are we going to interpret that? How are we going to interpret that phrase, uh, killed in the line of duty? The court says, well, first thing is, is that phrase is ambiguous. Uh, we can uh, attribute all sorts of alternative and conflicting meanings to that particular phrase. And when a statute is ambiguous, that means we can look at a lot of extrinsic information, other information, uh, like legislative history, prior Supreme Court decisions, uh, and the like. And here's how the court ends up resolving this issue. Uh, the court says, uh, we decided a case, or the Supreme Court of Minnesota decided a case that defined, quote, killed in the line of duty as, quote, death resulting from the performance of those duties peculiar to a peace officer that exposed the officer to the hazard of being killed. The court says, if we apply that definition to this case, we think the definition is broad enough to encompass a death by suicide resulting from PTSD that are caused by duties peculiar to a public safety officer. And I'm quoting now. In other words, because PTSD and the resulting risk of suicide among public safety officers presents a life-threatening danger associated with the performance of those duties peculiar to being a public safety officer, such a death results from the performance of those duties that expose the officer to the hazard of being killed. And the court says benefits should be awarded. Now, this is a topic that's actually being discussed in uh, several legislatures, to my knowledge, right now across the country, out of a recognition that the suicide rate for public safety employees particularly for firefighters and corrections officers, but also for police, those suicide rates are significantly higher than the suicide rates for the population as a whole. And we are starting to see some legislative movement around the country that would deem job-related suicides, where there's the evidence to tie the suicide to the stresses of the job that would deem that to be a work-related incident. Well, that's it for the February 2023 edition of First Thursday. Hey, we hope to see you in April in Las Vegas when we are going to be putting on our collective bargaining seminar. Uh, hope you've had a great start to the year. And with that, this is Will Aitchison signing off.